Hello and welcome to The Tangent Tree. My name is Samantha Stephen. I'm Simon Dillon. And we keep doing this to you guys, but we feel like we really didn't get to the meat and the bones of sci-fi. So this is going to be sci-fi part two. I, th- I feel like we, we, we did the odd limb here and there, but we sort of need to cover a lot more. Well, let's do it a little bit more structured. Okay. So how about we do the first time that we had made alien contact in cinema? Okay. Well, the first time we made alien contact in cinema, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I mean, it does go back. I mean... I mean, you know, to be honest, you could go back to the sort of uh, the War of the Worlds, really. And well, the first men in the moon, the George Méliès films, which, you know, are celebrated in films like Martin Scorsese's Hugo. But I'm going to jump ahead okay. a little bit. And then I'm going to take us back okay. to I War hope... of the Worlds. Are you going to go back to War of the Worlds? Mm. Okay, well, let's do War of the Worlds. Because... Well, I think it's a really important thing because the power of media was displayed possibly for the first time in a ridiculously strong way. Oh, you're talking about the Orson Welles radio broadcast, aren't you? Okay, in which case, yes. Because, I mean, the the thing is that uh, what... I just want to... Well, because that's kind of the first time that we had alien contact in media, right? Okay, so for the benefit of everybody watching, listening, (laughs) I should say, um, Orson Welles, before he made Citizen Kane, he and his uh, Mercury Theatre actors and actresses, they put on a performance on the radio of of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. And what they did, they made it sound like they were interrupting a concert with news broadcasts of alien landings in America. But we should say it was planned and it was wrapped around. It just happened that loads of people interacted with the broadcast at the perfect time, so they missed all of that. So... A lot of people in America thought that aliens were genuinely landing and invading the United States. And there are there was a widespread panic and there was an investigation into this. And it was, of course, it was an almighty prank on the part of Orson Welles. But a lot of people believed it. And of course, but I think even they were shocked by the response. Yes. I mean, there are, I've got some photographs, some lovely monochrome photographs of people in Kansas hiding behind bales of hay with <laughs> shotguns, you know, all the better for sort of attacking those marauding Martians. I used to live in Kansas. I can see that happening. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it, it's an interesting, an interesting phenomenon. I mean, people sort of talk about things like... Um, the the sort of found footage genre is very based on that kind of idea now with things like the Blair Witch Project and so on. But again, it's all been done before and most powerfully, I think, by Orson Welles in 1938 when he did that radio broadcast. But I think the reason why it works so well is because there's so many of us have this idea there is, there must be something out there more than us. Of course. And what is it? So then I imagine that that profoundly impacted people to the point where they saw an opportunity to put it on film. Well, I think you you see a lot of the anxieties. Yes, and I mean there is a film version. There's a couple of film versions of War of the Worlds. There's the 1950s one, um, which I rather like, and then there's also the Spielberg one, which I think is quite underrated too. Um, and I think, and there's also going to be a new one coming up. The is BBC, that? yeah, the BBC have done a version that's coming out soon, which is the only version that's been filmed that actually is set in its actual contemporary. Uh, sorry, the the um, late Victorian setting. Which oh, is, that would be very cool. It's the only time it's ever been put in its actual setting that's in the novel. Interesting. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. But yeah, War of the Worlds is a classic. Obviously, he also did The Time Machine, H.G. Wells, which has been adapted very memorably in a 1960 film, which I adore, and then less memorably in a 2002 one, which I'm, well, less keen on. Yes. But... Um, so, so H.G. Wells obviously was a was a was a in, in, in important figure in science fiction. The other person, since we're talking about that early, um, Jules Verne, mm-hmm. who uh, you know, first men in the moon, and obviously twenty thousand leagues under the sea. 
there's a great film of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea from the Disney did in the 50s, which I think we've talked about on a previous yes, podcast, which again is one of my favorite films. But it, it very it anticipated a lot of things. Well, I think that's an also interesting point the fact that the sea is incredibly unknowable. In fact, there's certain things where we know more, I think, about outer space than we do about what's under the sea, which is terrifying. Yeah. But I, and I think that nicely links the idea of space aliens and all this thing it's it's the unknown which makes all sci-fi slightly horrific horrific yeah. well, did you ever watch the abyss by the way oh my god yes yeah i mean i'm one of the two people who saw that in the cinema by the way <laughs> you're one of the two people who saw everything in the cinema you know because the abyss was the only james cameron film that didn't terminate box office records yes um i saw that in the cinema i'm going to give a special shout to my old friend mark thomas who um, whoop, whoop. who saw that with me in the original 1989 release. And we'd, you know, obviously it was a huge flop, but we both thought it was brilliant. Mm. I mean, it's flawed, but it's brilliant. And um, again, that deals with unknown forces under the sea. Although I think the film works better as a futuristic drama. Than but this idea goes back so. towards even, um, for us, the easiest reference is biblical, because we both yeah. have been raised and lived in quite a, a religious environment is the idea of leviathan yes and the book of job what yes. is this freaking giant dragon that lives under the sea and is huge well i reckon it was probably a sauropod dinosaur but there you go well it's similar to the the, the norse myths or the about loch ness the, monster you know? well about the serpent that wraps around midgard or the world do you yes. know what i mean and so i think of this idea of things that are alien mythical almost yes or an just, just things that are already here yes. and maybe under the surface I mean, Watching, you, even, you even get that in, in certain Doctor Who episodes like the Silurians you know the, the, the race of reptilian humanoids that were here or before the weeping humans. angels though well yes but aren't they hang on a minute though aren't they from another planet they are so, but they but, mask as things from here all oh, right. Oh, I see. Sorry. I just it's just in the specific case of the Silurians and Doctors who are getting yes. very nerdy here I do apologise no this is this is what it, okay. this is for okay um, but I wanted to just go back to the to the subject of aliens for a minute. In the 1950s, obviously, you've got the whole McCarthy witch hunts going on, and yes. a lot of, and obviously, the Roswell crash has happened, and so that all this stuff's in the public consciousness. And then you get a lot of alien invasion films around that time. You know, Earth versus the flying saucers. But then you also get the odd benevolent visitor too, like the day the Earth stood still. Uh, where you know the, the the guy comes with a warning to the earth about yeah. the path of destruction it's on and films like the day the earth stood still for me they paved the way for the later more benevolent alien encounter films like close encounters of the third kind or more recently arrival you know which again a very very interesting so i'm jumping around a bit That's here okay. but i just want to stay in the 50s for a minute because the other thing you see in the 50s are the creature features which yes. anxieties about the atomic age and so on with with my all-time favorite 50s b-movie creature feature them with the giant ants which i memorably traumatized my youngest son with <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to Kids say. Kids should be traumatised. Uh, well, Don't he, quote he, me on that. Yes, he loves he loves that film. Yes. But um, yeah, he was quite scared the first time he saw it. <laughs> it's, it's a gem though. You should definitely watch them. It's yeah. a, it's, it was a big influence on James Cameron for Aliens as well with the giant ants. But um, yeah, there's some... And the other, of course, the other thing in the 1950s with the um, McCarthy thing going on is you get a film like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is science fiction horror. But the idea that your next door neighbour could be suddenly replaced yes. and the isolation and, and alienation and emotionlessness of what that implies is, is a bit like what has happening with people who are being denounced as you know communists to the House of Un-American Activities. It's yes. like all their neighbours, the people who they thought were their friends or whatever, suddenly turn on them. Okay. Yes, apparently. Apparently. Or 
you can read that film as pro McCarthy. It's about communist infiltration, or yes. it's about you see, or you just look at it as a damn scary film, which is pretty much how I look at it. I think a lot of filmmakers don't like to explain what they meant because it's more about the interpretation of the moviegoer That's than right. it is about the director. That's right. The original Invasion of the Body Snatchers can be reviewed as either pro or anti-McCarthy, depending on... And that on, says yeah. more about you than it does the film. Exactly. And I think, by the way, subsequent iterations of that film, the 1978 one, the 1993 one, Abel, with Abel Ferrara did, those are both worth watching too. The only one that's not that good is the recent one with Nicole Kidman, but most of them are, are good. And actually... I think Nicole Kidman does a lot about body snatching. <laughs> well... She does, doesn't she? Yeah, I just um, wanted to put that out there. I love Nicole Kidman. She's a. I, I, it's just she's not great. That's not a great film with her, but it's not her fault that she's a great actress. But I just want to say that I do think certain stories like Invasion of the Body Snatchers can stand a remake every once in a while because yeah. they're fairly universal in their sort of primal fears that they exploit. And um, I think there was obviously a lot of that going on in the 1950s at the height of the Cold War um, as well, apart from anything else. So... You get a lot of alien invasion stuff going on then, and then. But I want to talk about Close Encounters of the Third Kind because that really was unlike anything. And I'll be honest, I have not seen that film since I was probably like nine or ten. Nine or ten. Yes. Wow. Okay. Well, I'll I'll tell you about Close Close Encounters. For me, is an absolute masterpiece. Although it is flawed, I'll I'll explain why in a minute. Um, I love the opening shot where you get the white on black credits that, you, you know, at first there's no sound and then you get this ethereal humming and then it builds and it builds and it builds all, as you're sitting in the cinema, uh, you the know, all around you. The, the, the Tremendous synth. Yes. Wah. And then you suddenly get this explosion of light on the screen in the middle of the desert and it's like, it's pure cinema, light and sound. You know, brilliant use of John Williams' score, obviously. Yes. And you, we must do a podcast on film scoring. Um and I love the opening scene where you are in the desert and it's like, what's going on? And there's a sandstorm and there's confusion and communication problems. And that's the key theme of that film, communication. Okay, because, you know, the guy's got to translate the French and the English and the English into Spanish and everything. Yes. And, and in the middle of all this, they found the planes from Flight 19 that, that went disappearing in the Bermuda Triangle. And it's like, what the heck is going on? And then you have that incredible scene with the, the guy who's sunburned on and, and on his face. And he and he, even though it was the middle of the night when this happened, and he said, oh, this guy saw what happened. And they translate it because he's speaking Spanish. He said, he says, the sun came out last night. He says... It sang to him. And, you know, and that and the way it's shot, the direction, the performances, John Williams' score, everything. It's like the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. And it's just so awe-inspiring. And then, yeah. obviously, everything that follows in that film, the the initial contact with Richard Dreyfuss with the... With the um, the, the the alien spacecraft and then his obsession and the way it drives him on a path of self-destruction and the madness and then of course ultimately the incredible finale at the devil's tower with the appearance of the mothership which is one of the most amazing images where the mothership appears so you, you need to see it in a cinema yes i mean it just it's jaw-dropping i saw it in a re-release again last year because i i've seen it about three times in the cinema on different occasions but i took the my children had not seen it and that yeah. was, again it was one of those you need to see it in the cinema when you see it for the first time kind of things and that sh appearance of the mothership is just jaw-dropping i still love it i still love the the finale is profoundly moving um and I love that film. I absolutely love it. The only thing I would say to critique it, and Spielberg himself has said this, is that the, there is a sort of subplot in the film involving essentially a guy abandoning his family and his children to sort of 
pursue the sort of thing that's happened to him. And he said that he would have written that differently now. He wouldn't have had him essentially go off into an alien mothership and just disappear. <laughs> just disappear. Because, but at the same time, it still kind of works if you look at it on a metaphorical level, almost the kind of Pilgrim's Progress, if you like. Well, I wanted for the to. UFO well, I wanted to ask you a question specifically about aliens, because that's kind of what we're talking about more than anything, is the idea of do you think it is better to show them or not to show them? Uh, not in something like Doctor Who, because that's different. Yes. I mean in standalone films. Okay, very interesting question. I'm going to put this... You see, Close Encounters does it brilliantly because you don't see them until right in the last scene. Yeah. Okay. Which um, is why I'm asking the okay. question. The 2001 kept, keeps them off the screen entirely, and Kubrick was right to do that because he said just having the sort of black monolith that suggests it's so other, it's so alien, it's so... That's all you really need to give the sort of enigmatic sense of something not... Human. Is, ...is going on here. But the, he said the minute you show aliens, you basically drop the sort of intellectual value of the mystery by goodness knows how much. And so they quite rightly kept the aliens off the screen which gives it ambiguity which gives it uh, is this aliens is this god is this what's actually going on here in this story and it really it's better not to in, a, in that kind of context it's better not to show them well On, I, I was going to compare it to horror movies right the idea of sometimes not showing is more than showing yes well i would because agree. it allows your imagination to fill the void of what do you think what's your greatest fear the, versus what's your greatest the problem with know. the problem with showing alien. an alien in a story like the ones we're describing close encounters and so on is that invariably they're often a letdown when you finally do get yeah, to see them it's not it's like when you know, your favorite book gets made into a film and the character doesn't look or sound or dress exactly like they did in your head there is an element of that i think i think that it's very difficult to get right I, i'll tell you a film that i think did get it right though uh, and that's arrival did you see arrival no you see arrival subvert- i want to see it though okay just, okay it. i'm gonna try i'm gonna dance around this because you, okay. you need to see arrival okay now in the same way that close encounters is about communication arrival is also about communication but it's distinct enough to stand up in its i think it's a masterpiece in its own right arrival um denny villeneuve who's a terrific director by the way he's going to be doing dune Okay, that's his yes. next project. So now I'm just going to a little tangent here about Dune. Dune is my all-time favourite science fiction novel. Interesting. Okay. I I've love, never read it. I, I love the novel. There is a dreadful David Lynch film. Yeah. Okay, which, I, which by the way, I love David Lynch, just not Dune. Okay. I love David Lynch um, as well. And weirdly enough, it's so frustrating because there are, there are visually interesting things in David Lynch's film, but the script was just appalling. Anyway, mm. and then there's also a, a sci-fi TV series of Dune, which was more faithful to the book, that, but that lacked any kind of the imagination, the scope needed to bring something like that to the screen. It's like somebody described, compared it to, it's like the science fiction equivalent to The Lord of the Rings. You need someone with a, the imagination of someone like Peter Jackson to do it justice. Yes. And then you need the same, and then Denny Villeneuve, I think, I hope, fingers can crossed, it. can do it. Anyway, back to the point. He directed uh, Arrival, and in Arrival... Uh, you've got a story that cleverly deals with the alien issue by showing them very early on. Actually, you kind of so the film isn't really about that, and they and they look very very alien. Okay, and it's a story about communication. Now, what do these aliens want? They come in here in these huge kind of weird cig- black cigar tube type spacecraft, and they have a message to communicate. But but the humans have to learn their language. 
Okay, so they have all these linguistic specialists, like Amy Adams is a linguistic specialist who comes in alongside Jeremy Renner to um, try and decipher what these aliens want and all these other governments around the world have got a similar thing going on. But then what happens, the the, the scary thing, they don't know if the aliens come in peace or they've got more malevolent intent and governments around the world disagree on this. So will they work together to decipher the message or will suspicion, mistrust and so on between governments and nations around the world eventually lead to a war between these aliens and humanity. But what's brilliant about the film, much like with Looper, okay, which we talked about in a previous podcast, is that ultimately it's not really about aliens and alien contact. It's about something much more profound. It asks a question which I think will have occurred to every single human being with any depth of thought, okay? Yes. I don't want to say what that question is because it will spoil it. Okay. Ah, but I can't. Bated breath. I can't because you have to see the film. Okay. But there is a central question at the heart of the story. You know, would you still do this if you knew this? Yeah. Kind of thing that's at the heart of the story. That I, honestly, I can't. I, that film blew me away. I came out of the cinema. I thought I never thought I'd see you know a film as as uh, on in the same league as Close Encounters. I just have. Yeah. Okay. It's a really good film. And I highly recommend it. So. Well, Okay, so in terms of sci-fi, shall we start talking about uh, do you want to do Back to the Future? Yeah, let's do Back to the Future. Or do you want to do something like TV series? Uh, We'll just see where it goes. We'll start with Back to the Future. I love Back to the Future. It is one of my favourite time travel... It is my favourite time travel movie, for sure. I love the characters. uh, And I love... It feels like... It feels like childhood to me. Yes, well, I mean, I saw not my... just because I watched it when I was a kid. It just has that. I mean, I, I, I mean, I mean, honestly, I, I almost feel like discussing Back to the Future is redundant in a sense because if you don't like it, what's wrong with you? Yeah, you know, get get medical treatment. I agree. You know, it's it's kind of it's so brilliant. I mean, I saw the original release in 1985. I was 10 years old. I remember going to see it with my dad. I remember we went with, we went a second time with my mum and my sister, and it's just brilliant. I think even before you know it's a time travel movie, the opening is fantastic. Yes. I love the whole amping up all the stereos, playing the one beat on the guitar, and then Huey and Lewis and the news kicking in. It's just an awesome... Well, I think what it does very cleverly is it, it's, it sets up a, a story very, very cleverly. And I a mean, character. Yes, and pays it off so brilliantly in what happens subsequently and what for me back to the again i think a lot of the case of science fiction it's not about time travel is it it's not about the quantum physics of time travel it's about something much more profound which is you know you've got i mean the 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 way it was pitched was you know what if you go back in time and your mum falls in love with you i mean it's kind of very risque (laughs) and the actors are amazing they are fantastic well michael j fox was actually you know eric stoltz was originally in the lead and he michael j fox replaced him they reshot all his scenes thank god because he, he just wasn't cutting it and michael j fox was perfectly cast i think for me the really underrated character in the story is crispin glover who played george mcfly interesting um and he obviously for me, he's the heart of the story, if I'm honest, for me personally, because I identify in a profound way with his character. And I can see and I and, understand and why you The work. way he's sort of, the way he's kind of, you know, he's a writer, but he thinks, oh, you know, what if people think I'm no good? I just can't take that kind of rejection, you know, and he, so he doesn't show anyone his stories. Yeah, of course, typical his son, creative. You know, and, and the fact that he's also, you know, he's bullied, he's kind of a bit of a perv as well. I mean, I just identify with him a lot. I'm just going to say, <laughs> you, know, love that. you know, but, but what he learns is, you know, and, and what's interesting about Back to the Future is also demonstrates the principle of, 
in stories, you need to do one of two things. You either have a protagonist who uh, develops and grows and changes himself or herself, or you have a protagonist who basically stays the same, but the people around them change. And this is a case of the latter, where Michael J. Fox's character, Martin McFly, doesn't really change in that film. But in his mother and his father do, you see. And it's not just his father, it's his mother as well. The fact that she's a heavy drinker in the present and, um, you know, and then when he goes, and he's sort of, they have that hilarious scene in the car where, yeah, you smoke too, don't you? You're beginning to sound just like my mother. <laughs> but actually, you know, it's interesting how he has a positive effect on both of them. Yeah. And how his father, you know, just needs the confidence that, and he stands up to the bully in the end, and and the and the and that's my favourite scene in the film. I mean, I love that scene where it all goes wrong because, of course, it was never supposed to be Biff that goes to the car, and it was supposed to be an act with Marty, but but then Biff, he really does stand up to Biff, and it's brilliant the way he finally does. It pays that. off as well in the long run. Of course, it does, and because I think it, it's an important message and principle because. Leaving aside the sequels for a second, okay? Which I also love. I know not everybody does, I, but I do love yeah, them. Yeah, they're okay. But Bi- even Biff changes, yes. actually, for the better. But that's why that I made story. that point. You know, because... And I think that I think that if you just take the first film as a context, yes. even Biff changes for the better. And I love that. And I love... Obviously, it's a thrilling and exciting too. You've got, you know, Doc Brown, who's crazy and hilarious. He's and my favourite character. You know, it all builds to the sort of, you know, properly, you know, nerve-shredding climax with the clock tower and all the rest of it. But it's just a brilliant film. I, I, what's not to like about it? I honestly... Do honestly, you know what my favourite thing about the film is? Is the music. Oh, uh, yes. That, just that twinkle is essentially what i can call it yes it's just that little motif because if you hear that anywhere they used it in a car advert recently and everybody knows exactly what it is yes well it's alan um alan silvestri was the composer you know aping john williams actually which i think was the influence of spielberg but um who was executive producer it's funny how many people don't recognize that robert zemeckis is the director of that film that is my favorite robert zemeckis film by the way it feels like a spielberg film it does i mean my i had to point it out to my dad i mean my dad we were having a discussion some years later and said oh what's your favorite spielberg film and he said back to the future i said it's not a spielberg film <laughs> it's he he oh, didn't he direct it no no i know but it, it feels i know like it, it does though. i mean you could you could it feels like it but it isn't he's the executive producer and he had creative input clearly but robert zemeckis it's it's his film and him and bob gale who wrote the screen but it's their film they really uh and it's a, it was a passion project for them they you know it was actually inspired by um you know him looking through his finding his father's old high school yearbook and wondering about would he have been friends with his father at school i imagine it's a passion project the same way as indiana jones was for george lucas and steven spielberg yes because they were both involved in that yes that's right but let's not get into that (laughs) um okay question for you doctor who sci-fi or fairy tale or sci-fi fairy tale I think it still falls in sci-fi for me, but it's very soft sci-fi. Mm. I mean, you have because uh, here's the thing. Here's the thing about a Doctor Who definitely has fairy tale overtones to it, no question about that. I mean, you know, it's going into the TARDIS and it's bigger on the inside, and it's like the wardrobe in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe yes. into another world. The thing about Doctor Who, I mean, Doctor Who's pretty much my favorite television program has been since I was tiny. Um, because it can be anything. It's, yes, it's an it's, it's a, my favorite. A well. genuine anything can happen series, and sometimes you don't like what happens. I mean, you, the fans will argue vehemently about this because sometimes the stories go in weird directions. Actually, why did that happen? That's ridiculous. And so there's a lot of argument within the fandom and and about sort of inconsistency. Well, like I'm a huge fan of River Song, and I know that some people 
hate the idea of River Song and the Doctor actually seriously being married to someone you see on screen versus a oh, long time ago I was married. Yes. Well, I, I have no problem with River Song. I thought she was a great character foil for him. Yeah. But in terms of the Doctor and the idea, I think it's interesting now that they have a woman playing him. Um, them, sorry. A woman playing them. But I think the idea that there's so many incarnations and the fact that each one has a different personality, each one has a different set of teeth, a different taste in food, a different like for songs. Well, it's interesting. If you put it in Myers-Briggs terms, okay. I see like ENFP doctor was definitely um, Matt Smith, Mm -hmm. I would say. But then INTJ doctor would be somebody like the one who came directly afterwards, um, Peter Capaldi. For instance, so yes. you're right about the different personalities. Now, I'm going to talk about Jodie Whittaker. Okay. Okay. Uh, woman Doctor is one thing. I know that caused some controversy at the time with you know people. I don't who really understand why though, because it's clearly set up well throughout the series I'm gonna, that I'm doctors be can change from male to female. I'm going to be honest with you. That wasn't my. I do have an issue with the, the most recent series, but that wasn't my issue. Yes. Okay. Female Doctor wasn't the issue. My issue with the most recent series is it felt like it was really, really preachy. Yes. trying too hard to shoehorn in kind of woke, if you'll forgive my use of an obscenity, um, kind of ideas to the point where it was bashing the audience over the head. And I just thought, no, 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 enough. I, I only care about one thing. Is this entertaining? Okay. Yes. You can be as PC as you like or as un-PC as you like. Just be entertaining. And I feel like they slightly... I feel, Here's what I feel like. Chris Chibnall, who did Broadchurch, which is a brilliant TV series, okay. And I feel as though... The sci-fi in, in it seemed to be an afterthought. Mm. And I think what some of the stories he did were good. I mean, I liked the Rosa Parks one. I liked, um, you know, that there was the one he did with the Dalek, the New Year one, which kind of was a, a, a step forward. I think that was a bit more, you know, yes. the way it should have been. But the trouble is, I felt as though they were, they were trying too hard to tick too many PC, you know, diversity awareness boxes. And, and it felt very laboured rather than just organically. Because as I said, I got you know, just as long as it's entertaining, I don't care. And it didn't quite. And I felt it was a shame because I think Jodie Whittaker is really well cast and actually served with decent material could do really well. Yeah. Now, I'm not it's not to say it was a total failure. Okay, but I was a little bit let down with the last series, I'm going to be honest with you. In terms of wokeness, I don't even know if that's the correct way to use woke, (laughs) Um, but in terms of being woke, I think my favourite where it wasn't too in your face is is very possibly Matt Smith, because I think they did bring certain elements and recognition of female characters and other bits and pieces, but it wasn't horrifically like shoehorned into look what we're doing can you tell because it's not secret at all yes whereas it was much more like okay i get what you're doing and i have to think about it which is much better than being like by the way this character is going to clearly tell you in one clearly written sentence why we're doing this and what the motivation is well exactly i mean i i i just didn't i mean it, it, i think it was a cumulative effect as well i didn't feel like in any one story there was there were one or two heavy-handed things but there wasn't really anything in any one story just how it ended up and i didn't feel as though the the season finale bringing back the villain from the first series wasn't really a strong enough villain in the first place to kind of justify it and bring but i think they could have made it over to a three series and had little elements but i wonder if doctor who needs to get back to um, also they weren't scary enough i'm just well, gonna throw that that's in what there i was too. gonna say i think there's certain times with david tennant 
where Doctor Who was scary. Yes. Like there were certain things that were done. Uh, obviously the Weeping Angel showing up, that was terrifying. It's one of my favorite episodes of Doctor yeah. Who ever. It is brilliant. Which is ironic because the Doctor's not really in it. Not well, much. He's well, there in, kind in, of in the beginning. Are you about the Blink videos? episode? Because yeah. obviously, that, I think all the Weeping Angel stories. I'm good. talking about the Blink one, the first yeah. time that yeah. they appear. I think um, obviously Sally Sparrow played by. Uh, oh, oh, she was brilliant though. Um, it'll come back to me. Carry on. While but I think. obviously, it was her big TV debut, I think, and then she went on to do films and Carrie Mulligan. Like, Thank you, and she's a fantastic actress. Yeah. Um, and I think that was... And remember her line, sad is happy for deep people. Yes. Which, which is me. <laughs> everybody went, oh my gosh, yes. This makes so much sense. But I I, th- I feel like David Tennant's like silence in the library. Yeah, The idea amazing. that the shadows eat you. Yeah. Oh my God. Terrifying. Because yeah. the... The Vash Narada, yes. I wonder if the best villains in Doctor Who were the ones that we interact with every day. We walk past statues. There are or shadows water all around in, us. Um, you know, the waters of Mars, mm-hmm. which was, you know, like a zombie story, but it was terrifying. But it's taking what's familiar to you and making you see it in a different way. Yeah. And I think those are the scariest monsters. Well, that's a great horror movie kind of uh, idea. But I think the thing with Doctor Who as well was, you see, I liked some of the... the do you know what my, I mean, we're just gonna, just talking about the more recent series, the post-2005 ones. Yes. My favourite story was one called um, Human Nature, Family of Blood. Do you remember those two yes, episodes? Yes, they were fantastic. Where he becomes human and it's just before the First World War in that boys' school. And where he falls in love with the, the woman there. And honestly, that was... Another great actress. It's an amazing story. And I love that scene. It's devastatingly sad when she just says to him, you know, at the end, he was braver than you. you yes. Know, it's just, I was just like, it's so good. It's and you so see good. the whole montage it's, of what their life together would have been. It's and absolutely stuff. brilliant. I love it. Um, I, the other one I loved, by the way, was Jump the Ood. Yes. You have the Satan pit and the... Uh, yeah, that was just... That was freaky too. That was like Alien meets The Exorcist. That's, let's see how scary we can make a programme for family audiences. You know? And there were certain elements even with Peter Capaldi where they started to wrangle with quite big ideas. Like, remember when he's trapped in that building? Oh, yes. That's that a was great a really episode, good episode. Very heady. But there, yeah. is, there are some good, but they're not as consistently brilliant as, for me, particularly in the David Tennant era, they yeah. were. Well, the David Tennant, you see, interesting. David Tennant, for me, was the um, was the better, there were better stories then. And then I think Matt Smith was my preferred doctor out yes, of the recent and I ones. agree with that. He but, was so much the character. And also, there was another uh, villain in the uh, Matt Smith one with the the silence. Oh my goodness, they, I actually had ni- I had two nightmares <laughs> after watching that one with the silence. <laughs> you know, with the you know where you where you look away and you forget they're there. Yes. That's, and what they, could and, be scary? Uh, yeah, they were absolutely unbelievably frightening. Um, you know, pure existential terror. And um and I think there's well the other way I think what I will say is this about Doctor Who. I mean I, I sort of think of it in two very distinct epochs, the sort of modern series and the classic series from nineteen sixty-three to nineteen eighty-nine. Yes. But even some of the classic series, there are things that they did in the classic series I don't think they'd even dare to do now. Yes. In in stories like Brain of Morbius, which is essentially Frankenstein on a different planet, or Pyramids of Mars with Sutek of the Destroyer and the you know, that horrible scene where the mummies crush that that poacher between them Ugh. and um all that sort of stuff there was a there was a lot of really nightmarish stuff in the original oh and the the one with the the plastic dummies that come to life yes you know the the terror of the autons which was the first story with the master i think yeah which they kind of tried to do yeah. again when you came back in 2005 yeah. in the first episode yes that's right but i think that there were things in there that i don't think like the idea of a child's toy coming to life and attacking oh, you and God. you know just 
Well, they and once again kind of touched on it with um, the ventriloquist doll with Matt oh, Smith in the hotel. Oh yes, but the again, maze. but the, the ventriloquist—that's the ter- uh, talons of Wing Chiang with the, the Tom Baker era. With um, yeah, oh yeah, that was really funny because I remember I was toy what, master, all of these different celestial things. toy maker. Yes, yeah, sorry, toy maker. Um, but I think. Doctor Who for me has always been this great canvas, which is why sometimes, particularly Matt Smith's area, I would say is quite fairy tale because of the Amy story. Yeah. Um, and that whole thing. Amy Pond was a brilliant companion. Amy Pond was a brilliant companion, and I loved the growth between her and Rory. Yes. Because he really just wasn't good enough in the beginning. And I kind of get where her perspective was, but his growth. Yes. Um, and being the centurion and all of these other bits and pieces that they added where they allowed him to have feasible character growth yeah. outside of the main timeline. Yes. If that makes sense. Because that's all that was for. Yes. It was literally to say this dude waited for 100 years. Like, I think, wasn't it 2,000 years or Was something? it 2,000? Well, oh, hang on, God. hang on. Uh, no, 1,000. 1,000 years, sorry. But or whatever. this idea that it changed from the girl who waited to the man who waited. Yes. And therefore that put them on a much more even pitting as characters, which was much better because at first you were like, you're really irritating and I think you should go away. Um, And so I really respected that whole story and the dynamic and just her growth as well. And also her growing into a mother. And I actually thought for overarching storylines, that was a good one within Doctor Who. That worked well for me. Yeah, I mean, I I would agree with you. I loved the the Rory uh, Amy relationship. I thought that was terrific. I think, I think if we're honest, I think Doctor Who isn't doesn't really look at time travel in the way that, that, that it's not in the same way that, that something like Back to the Future does or Looper does or uh, the Time Machine does or any of the the sort of or the Terminator does. It's it do is, you think that's because it's time and space? I think it's I think you're what you said about I'm starting to think about what you said about the fairy tale element. Mm. I think there's been very few times in Doctor Who where it's actually oh my goodness me we've messed up something in the past and now we need to fix it. I I, I, I that hardly ever happens in Doctor yes. Who. Well because it's not yeah. the point. It's not the fear of time travel isn't the idea that you'll mess up the past. Yeah. It's just that something will go wrong and you have to fix it. Yes. So it, it like you say it doesn't really it doesn't really do time travel in the way that, that you know. I, I mean I mean, Star Trek does time travel in a, in a more traditional way, I think, than Doctor Who does. I think Star Trek's just a more accurate sci-fi, though. Yeah, it did, In yeah. terms of, like you say, being preoccupied with the idea of what's the science, why is the science, and how does it impact Well, us? interestingly, both Star Trek and Doctor Who, I think, pioneered a lot of ideas, like things like parallel universes and so on. And, and you know, they both started in the 1960s, obviously, and we should do another podcast on... We are. We uh, will. ...on Star Trek. Um, could, what Have we talked about... Um, we didn't talk about Interstellar, did we? Well, let's make it our last film to talk about, because I agree, Interstellar is worth it. Okay, oh, well, we haven't talked about Inception. Maybe we should do Christopher Nolan on a separate podcast then. Okay, let's do a separate Christopher Nolan podcast, and let's wrap it up here. Okay. So thank you, everybody, for listening to The Tangent Tree this week, and we will see you next time.